Hi, folks. Welcome. Thanks for joining us on The Cream of the Crop, a podcast dedicated to agriculture. We talk to top leaders, share top ideas, and discuss top trends and products. We get to the heart of ag and put the issues on the table. Hi, folks, and welcome. This is Justin Machel, co-host, along with Steve Maxwell, CEO of Highland Ag Solutions. And uh, we got a great show lined up today. We're going to continue the narrative on um, on this response to the pandemic here with coronavirus. And we've got another special guest in studio today to, to talk about that. Uh, we're going to welcome uh, Chalmers Carr. Chalmers is the owner-operator of uh, Titan Farms in Ridge Spring, South Carolina. Uh, he's also the president of USA Farmers. Uh, which is a national organization that represents H2A employers. Uh, and he's also the chairman of the USDA Fruit and Vegetable Advisory Committee. First generation farmer, been farming up in South Carolina for 22 years now. Uh, so he's got a, a wealth of experience uh, when it comes to the issues at hand uh, here with the farmers facing the H2A employer issues uh, and and uh, all the things we've been talking about here recently. So Chalmers, welcome here. Uh, also your wife, uh, Lori Ann, welcome to the show today. I was going to say he brought his CEO as well. He did. Yeah, Lorianne's here. So uh, we're grateful for you guys to come by today. And like Justin said, we've been talking to several growers across the nation about the situation we're in right now. And we wanted to get your take on it and really gear this toward the consumer that's waking up today in a new world. Um, you know, it was very alarming to wake up and find out that a lot of our medical supplies are, are produced offshore. Uh, I think the food supply now, as we go into our grocery stores for the first time, many of us are seeing empty shelves and we're wondering what's going on. It's a good time to think and take note about where our food supply comes from. You're the largest peach grower um, outside of the state of California in the United States. Uh, you're a big vegetable grower. First of all, I want to thank you for what you do, the risk you take um, every day. You and Lorianne both. Y'all paid a heck of a price. We go a long way back. We didn't have any gray hair when we first started. But Chalmers, welcome aboard. And uh, Lorianne, I want you to pitch in whenever you see fit to do so. so. Just tell us a little bit of what's going on in your world right now. Well, we appreciate the opportunity to be here with you, Steve and Justin, and just share a little bit about what is going on at the farm level. As you talked about, supply chain is changing, our world is changing, and it's it's scary for a lot of folks. You know, that morning when we woke up, I guess it was two weeks ago, almost tomorrow, we got a notification that we weren't going to be able to get our H-2A workers. They were going to close down the border. A lot of people don't understand how important a foreign labor supply is to the agriculture industry, and we've been in the H-2A program now for 22 years, have a 98% return rate of our workers, and somebody says, you're not going to be able to get your workers back. Well, I had somebody just comment and say, well, can't you get local workers? If I could have gotten local workers, I'd have never been in the H-2A program to begin with. You know, last year alone, we advertised for 1,200 jobs, and we had seven U.S. workers apply for them. Without that workforce, this industry would be in trouble. Seven out of how many? 1,200. 1,200. <laughs> so think about that. Now, we live in a small town. Um, Ridge Springs population is 625. So in the summertime, when I house 800 people, I'm bigger than my town. So you got to understand that. But what we did is we started understanding it. Luckily, the government got involved and it realized that the H-2A workforce and just agriculture is an essential part of our economy, but an essential part of getting over this kind of pandemic we're going through. So luckily right now we're able to return our current workers, the ones that worked last year, they're able to come back on an interview waiver. Problem is that's still not going to meet the need. This program's been growing at about 20% a year. So there's going to be a certain segment of the workforce that isn't going to be yet here. We already know that we have a domestic shortage. So there is a concern of where we're going to be out on our food supply. Um, right now, I don't think it's anything to be overly concerned about, but any disruption along the way, not just on the harvesting side and the growing side of it, but we look at the transportation side of it. You already see at the store level, you know, if workers get sick, 
how are we going to get food to our citizens? So what I heard you say is you, even though 98% of your folks do return, you're still growing by 20%. So you still need additional workers. And that's where the gap is going to be, not only for you, but probably multiple growers of multiple commodities. Correct. So the H-2A program stayed stagnant for, um, I'd say, 30 years almost. Basically brought in forty to 50,000 workers a year. About six years ago, 2013, it started growing and started growing rapidly. We went from 60,000 visas to last year, 205,000 visas issued to bring workers in. So that's about a growth rate of 20 to 30,000 a year. So if you just looked at 2020, we know this program was projected to be at about 240,000 workers. Well, most of those had to be new, those above 205,000. So that's about 35,000 workers that were not going to qualify for this interview waiver. Then we also know by history, 5 to 10% of the, the other workforce that worked last year for one reason or other aren't coming back. Either they've retired or they've moved on and they've done the American dream. They've saved enough money and they're creating business themselves. So it's easy to project that we're going to have about 50,000 workers not be able to get in through this program that we would need. Now, that's not a lot of numbers when you look at probably about 1.4 million actually work in agriculture, what we call farm and livestock workers. But overall, if our domestic workforce was to get affected by, by this virus and not able to work or have to stay at home and take care of their children, and we can't bring in as many foreign workers we need, then you can start seeing work shortages. Somebody asked me what we would do if we made it across the mountains. We would have to make a decision on what we could harvest and what we could pack because we couldn't do it all. And therefore, we would be producing less than we'd want to. Now, uh, we've talked to some growers over the last couple of weeks, and they mentioned that the, the new applicants would not be able to, to participate this season. Is that still the same uh, situation today? I know it's been changing the last couple of weeks. Actually, last Thursday, they issued a new um, guidance that said that if they were eligible to come and they for one reason or another, they were going to look at the interview waiver and see if they could apply it to new workers, which means they would have to have a record of never being here unlawfully or doing anything wrong. So it's going to take longer, obviously, to do that, but at least our government is realizing this is an important workforce, and they're trying to figure out how just beyond the interview waivers, which the interview waiver basically says, if they've been coming year in and year out and had a visa in the last 12 months, they would be able to come. So now what they're saying is if it's a new worker and they don't see anything in the record that would cause them to have that in-person interview, then possibly they can come. But we still have consulates outside of Mexico that still aren't open yet to bring in workers. South Africa being one of them, our industry, um, the combining industry, gets quite a bit of their operators from that country, and they're still not able to come yet. This is obviously an urgent situation. Uh, you've been at this for a long time. What other issues are out there right now that are affecting your business and really the supply to American consumers uh, over the last you know, 10 years, 12 years? What other things are going on out there that the consumer needs to know about that maybe don't know about right now that are affecting how you produce and how you deliver your product to the, to the U.S. consumer? Steve, you said it best when we got started. Our world has changed, and it's going to change forever. I mean, it's going to be really interesting when this thing's over with. Do we all start going back to restaurants, sitting close to another? Are we going to fly on planes again? How many people are actually going to stay at work and home? On the farm level, a lot of things have changed. Um, yes, I've got secretaries office support, accounting teams, they can all work at home. But in the fields, we can't. And when we house, part of being in the H-2A program is we have to house every one of our workers ourselves. So we've got dormitory-type housing where we have four men to the room. You know, we house 800 people during the peak of our season. But everything has changed for us. SOPs of how we do everything. Just now, sitting there talking to them, translating to them, and making sure they, the workers themselves, know everything about this. Because right now, really much of the information they get is through social media. We all know how some of that can be good and some of that can be 
bad. So we're having to go have meetings twice a week with them, talk about hygiene, how to take care of themselves. We're providing sanitizers to them. We're actually cleaning the facilities ourselves, just different stuff that we're doing. The latest one that came over this weekend is now we'll have a dedicated staff person going through our processing plant, wiping down all the doors. We're now going to do temperature checks as they come into work, something that I didn't think we were going to have to do. But now we're talking about not being in the field, but they're coming in the packing shed. So doing temperature checks as they come in. So if somebody's running a fever, now go back home and we'll monitor them. The other thing we've had to do is we've had to learn how to self-quarantine. Luckily on our farm, we don't have anybody. I haven't heard of anybody on a farm, migrant worker being sick, but we've had to go through the steps. What happens if one does get sick? We had to build or not build, but we had to isolate other facilities so that we could put these workers into it. So these are things that farmers never once used to think about. You know, I always believed in taking care of our workers. Our workers are part of our family, but no different than what we're doing for our own family members. Now we're having to do it for our much larger family, and that makes it challenging. Before this issue came about, what other issues were you dealing with? I know you're active in Washington, D.C. with our politicians, but what other issues do you see that's really affecting your, your industry? Well, I mean, one of the big things has always been immigration reform. Um, we have been fighting immigration reform ever since 1998. So trying to get a policy in place that one recognizes there's a current workforce, but we're going to have to have a future flow. Um, I've testified for Congress three different times. And when I testify, the last thing I always say is the food on your table harvest and food on your table tonight is going to be harvested by a foreign worker. It's whether it's going to be harvested inside this country by a foreign worker or it's going to be harvested outside of this country. Trust me, when you go overseas, you'll trust, you'll be very glad that that food was grown and produced here in the U.S. Well, Tom, I, I got a question. So, so you guys have, have really taken steps uh, beyond the traditional food safety programs that you already have because you've got to mitigate the issues. Uh, you got to get ahead of these issues so it doesn't become uh, a problem. Uh, what resources have you tapped into uh, for best practices, just common sense approach. Uh, and and are you seeing the same thing with other farmers adopting that? Or do you have advice for other farmers uh, that they could take to be proactive in these steps? Um, yes. Obviously, we all are members of different organizations, United Fresh and some others that I can mention are all putting out great guidance. But most of it is coming from the CDC and it's just adapted to what you can do. Um, then the other thing is just peer groups, talking with other farmers. My food safety director has been challenged to talk to other food safety directors to figure out what is best. One of the first things that nobody realized was most of the hand sanitizer you were buying over the counter wasn't effective at all. You needed an alcohol-based sanitizer. And guess where it came from? It was actually our pack and shed sanitizers that we were buying in 55-gallon drums that we were able to go cut, put in spray bottles, and deliver to everybody. So we had the best product you could have. We just never thought about using it the way we were using it. So those are things like that where you've got educated people that kind of know the products and you break this thing down. But when we're going through these different steps, it's going to be interesting on the supply side. How do we move forward? Because like I said, in the fields, we can do a lot of social distancing. But in a packing shed, you really can't. And again, we have to be very cognizant. That is the last step in most cases of the food um, food chain before we deliver that product. And so taking care of those workers there and still being able to do that job is going to be really a challenge. Now, you mentioned a comment uh, when you testified before Congress last time about the food they eat, whether it's coming from our country or foreign countries. Can you talk a little bit about the foreign competition? Um, you know, free trade has certainly, uh, you know, caused some issues with American farmers. Uh, it is proven there's many Congress folks that have uh, that have even said, you know, American farmers struggling today. We all know it. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, the foreign competition and, and how that affects your oh, company? I certainly can. Um, beyond immigration, which has always been the other hat I've worn, um, been a producer now for 22 years on my own in South Carolina. I actually started in Florida before that. And right during when NAFTA was done. So I was growing peaches and vegetables here in 1991, 92, and, and NAFTA came along and everybody thought that was going to be good for everybody. But Florida realized at first, the tomato industry, um, what the effects of that was. Now we have this new agreement, the USMCA agreement. 
did not do anything to solve the problems in the southeast. And to give you a personal perspective on that, we grow about 600 acres of bell pepper a year. I've been growing bell pepper in South Carolina for 19 years. And so, and fall of our year is always our big crop. We have peaches during the summer and a little bit of um, pepper in the summer, but the fall has been our big crop. We started realizing our price had kept going down. The last five years, I'm selling pepper for less than I was 20 years ago, which really seems odd. But what I did is I started researching it. I found out Mexico has grown their exports to, to the United States by 38% in five years. The country is now a net importer of bell pepper. We actually import more bell pepper than we grow, and we can grow bell pepper all day long. The problem is our cost of labor and our cost of doing business here is too expensive compared to Mexico, where honestly their, their wages in Mexico are less than a dollar an hour. So you think about that, one-fifteenth of what we're paying here. Yet they can come across the border freely. There's no tariffs or anything like that under this agreement. So this is going to make it difficult for farmers. We've had to cut our acreage back. Last year we had 1,600 acres of vegetables. This year we don't plan to grow up at 600 acres of vegetables. Well, and that's that's the story over and over and over again. I know I was in the tomato industry in the early 90s on the sales desk when the first NAFTA kicked in, and it devastated. It's just totally devastated. I think Wade Purvis down south in Immokalee said uh, used to be 60 some odd vegetable growers down there. Now they're down to three or four. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that is going to happen in every industry if we don't get a grip on this. And what we're asking the consumer to do is basically to support local, support your U.S. grown food. The free enterprise system works. It's the best system in the world. It's, it's supplied more people getting them out of poverty into the system. But the rules have to be the same for everybody. And, uh, and I have never met a farmer in the U.S. afraid to compete, but they've got to compete on the same playing field. That's exactly right. And you, you talked about earlier about the shelves being empty. Now you really need to look at the supply chain. What happens if we did close down our border? We now import 51% of our fruit, 51% of our fruit and vegetables coming to the country. Now most of that is in the wintertime when we can't produce, but that still competes against us during the summertime as well. What happened if our borders did get closed down where we couldn't get that or our transportation system because our truck drivers couldn't get across the border and such as that? We have to have a domestic food supply. I've always argued that this country for the last three, four decades is basically done political decisions based on energy policy. Think about what happens if you start making decisions based on food policy. And that's very serious. And that's very real today. Well, it's 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 becoming very real when you walk in a store today and you see that shelf empty. Um, and so, again, my hat's off to you for what you're doing as we're trying to get the word out. Another thing that uh, that has been brought up is, is, you know, the retail side of things has shifted as well. So I, I see a, a catch-22 for some people. I know like in the blueberry industry, for example, you've got a marketer who's been tasked by the retailer to make sure we don't run out of blueberries. So that marketer has to go and tap into all this fruit. And we, we, we love blueberries year-round. We love the shelf to be full year-round. The issue isn't that. The issue is the overlap period, right? There's an overlap period where we have unfair competition because of the cost model versus here. So that's really the window we're looking at, right? If we could somehow have the consumer understand and the retailer understand that they need to be pulling from the U.S., what's happening is slowly but surely the U.S. growers are going out of business. And one day when you have to pull from the U.S., they won't be around to pull from, right? What it says is windows have changed. I mean, stone fruit peaches. I mean, so Chile, South America is where we usually get our wintertime peaches from. And that's not going to change. But let's talk about commodities like strawberries or blueberries or, or even bell pepper. Mexico itself has invested billions of dollars. Their government has invested billions of dollars into their rural infrastructure. In this country, we don't have 60,000 acres of protective growth, meaning hoop houses or glass houses. 
Mexico 10 years ago did not have but 10,000 acres. Today they have 100,000 acres. That changes windows. That allows them to grow crops in seasons they originally couldn't. And they got, they got wise to it. They understood that that was going to be a very good market for them because, again, in specialty crops, labor typically is 35 to 40% of our input cost. People do not realize how much this is labor-intensive as we're trying to raise wages in this country, which is great for everybody. But unfortunately, the consumer or the retailer in particular is trying to keep that food cost down. So the easy way to do that is go to where it's cheaper sourced. So on the retailer side, again, focusing on them, in the last 22 years since you've been in the game, what has the uh, dynamics of that industry done? I mean, is it, have they gotten more retailers, less retailers? I mean, how, how many folks do you have to sell to? It's, it's no different than um, in the farming side of things. It's consolidation everywhere. It's supply and demand and who can be the most efficient. When you look at the number of retailers out there, I mean, you've got the big ones out there, of course, but the small independent retailers have all gone to the wayside. I mean, so... We just have to understand that is going to change. And unfortunately with that, they have to figure out their supply side. A buyer used to handle four to five, six commodities. He knew every grower and would talk to every grower. They might be now buying 30 or 40 different commodities at a time. Their days have gotten so busy. So like you said earlier, they pass it along to a supply intermediary who then can source it from a number of different places. And that retailer may not know they're getting product from Peru because last week they were getting blueberries from Florida, but all of a sudden there was an opportunity to buy from Peru. And again, it's dollar cost averaging. And that's unfortunate. That's where the consumer really needs to be asking their produce department, hey, where is this coming from? Are we supporting local? You know, especially now when we learn from COVID-19, supply chain disruption, you want to be supplying or sourcing as close as you possibly can. That's going to solve a lot of problems instead of worrying about bringing something all the way in from a foreign country and everything. If it's right there in your backyard, you need to be sourcing it from your backyard. Well, and a lot of consumers don't realize how few imports are actually tested, and they don't have the rigorous standards that we have in the United States. That's a good point. I'm, as I said, I serve on the Fruit and Vegetable Advisory Committee. Stat out of USDA, you can go look at it on the website. Less than 1% of the produce that comes in this country is actually inspected. 1%. That's scary. When you consider, we're growing under all the different protocols that you know of. Not only are we going through third-party artists ourselves, but we got FDA, USDA, EPA looking at everything we do. We have to keep records for two to three years to prove exactly what what we've done. You go outside this country, they don't necessarily have to have the same requirements. That's astounding, really. When you put all that together, the picture is grim, but the solution is really simple. It's just awareness from the consumer. And what I found with retail, and my, my dealing with retail back when I was on the sales desk, the only people and I was told this by a top owner of a retail company. I'm not going to say who. The only people they listen to is the consumer. And they get, uh, they, they're competing with, with other big box chains and, and people that have higher volumes. And so when they bring in U.S. in, as a matter of fact, this gentleman told me, he said that he gets phone calls every week. Why are you at $2.99 a pound and the guy down the street's at $1.99 a pound? Well, the guy down the street is buying offshore and we're trying to support locals, what I was told. So he has to answer those questions every day. But when the consumer demands it, they, they bring it in. I'm glad you brought that up. That's the reason why we're very proud to be a part of this organization that's just gotten started and came out of Florida right here, Bud Childs and his group, and it's called Demand American Grown, and it's designed to go straight to the consumer. Remember when we were growing up, we used to always talk in Farm Bureau as part of this, how we'd get our message out there, and we were talking about spending hundreds of millions of dollars to do advertising. With social media, we have the perfect avenue right now to get out there. So just telling consumers exactly what is the benefit from demanding American grown. One is higher quality, travels less distance. If we want to talk about protecting the environment, then closer you source is going to be the better off when we talk about the footprint. But also just supporting our farmers in general because we do not want to continue to move our production offshore. So just having it grown here and letting the consumer demand that is going to be the best way. So it's a grassroots movement designed at getting to the consumer and having the consumer ask the question. 
what was the name of that website again? Demand American Grown. DemandAmericanGrown.org. Okay, very good. Well, it's a matter of national food security, too. And consumers need to understand that. And in this time, they need to reflect on the food source, the supply chain, and realize it truly is a matter of you know, food security to this country. If we're a net importer of produce, that means we rely on other countries to feed us. That's a scary proposition. Well, I say this often too, but those dollars go back into that little town, Rich Spring, South Carolina, that community around there. And that, that dollar goes to tithe at a church or to pay for a small work to be done at your home or a packing house, an electrician. It, go, it stays local. When we go offshore, where does that money go? We have no clue. We have some ideas. You read about them in the headlines every now and then. But uh, we need that money in our local communities. We need that farmer to stay in business. They are more than just supplying food, which is critical. When you go in, I know we've got you know, thousands of customers nationwide with our businesses. They're all growers. And they're cut from the same cloth. They're, for the most part, they're honest, they're hardworking, they believe in family, they're the backbone of our nation. And we do not want to lose that, not only for the food supply, but we don't want to lose that character that's uh, so vital to our country. Well, Steve, let me tie it together for you back to that story I was telling you about bell pepper. So what we've done, and we've done the numbers on this, we're cutting out basically 65% of our vegetable operation. That's about $6 million in sales. Now, that's 200 jobs. That's about $1.4 million in payroll. But a $6 million crop has about a $20 million effect on the state or the local economy because you got a 3X factor buying chemicals, fertilizer, and everything else like that. That's just one operation. That's my operation. I'm the largest single private employer in Edgefield County, South Carolina. The only person bigger than me is the state prison system. So <laughs> if you understand that, you know, so that is a huge impact to this economy. And so the Hispanic workers that I have, the HUA workers, yes, they send money home to take care of families. They're all over, no different than we are, just make our families better. But they're also buying food, clothes. Believe it or not, they're buying phones, cars, and everything else while they're here. They're spending money in these economies. If I don't bring those workers over here, that's less money that's going to get redistributed in the, in the economy. And farmers are the backbone of every rural community. I mean, like I said, my town's 600. You don't think 2017, when I lost my entire crop, you don't think the town suffered and knew about it? So supporting your farmers is huge. And people need to understand that we're here. Farmers right now are dedicated more than ever because we know that we're going to be a part of the supply chain to fix this problem as we go forward because you're going to have to have food. People say restaurants are closed down and nobody's going out to eat. There's still over 300 million people in this country, and they're all still eating. So somebody's got to feed them. You're going to eat them somewhere. And we will come back. I'm confident we'll come back. It may not be overnight, but we will come back. And I'm excited for the future. We got some rough rows to plow to put it in your world coming up here, but eventually I think a lot of things are going to change. The psychic of the people have changed, but I think it's going to rip our politicians and the, and the rules and, and the regulations and the tax benefits or whatever it is. There's going to be opportunity for, for the grower and for manufacturing and other things like that for our country. I think the blessing long term will far outweigh what we're going to pay in price here coming up. Well, Chalmers, we've had several blueberry growers on uh, the last couple of weeks, so I'm excited to have a, a peach grower on here now. So and we, bell pepper. We, Don't forget the bell and pepper. Bell pepper. Uh, so we've, we've told the American consumer, uh, go to demandamericangrown.org, talk to their local produce manager about buying American food. I want to end on the peach crop. So can you tell tell consumers uh, 
What is the time frame for your peach crop? How's the crop looking this year? And we'll end on that. Well, let me give a plug for Florida right now. Well, that's why we're down here. We actually have two operations here in Florida that grow peaches. So Florida peach season started about two weeks ago. That's the first domestic grown peaches in the country. Great tasting peaches, by the way. Um, they are small. Let's get that out of the equation, but they are small, but actually, actually great. Lori and I were in the orchards last night. Yeah, we did. They were um, really the good. First peaches of the year for us. Um, so this crop will go on to about the middle of May. It's probably about 75% of a crop and um, everything looks really good. Weather's been great, so we're excited about that. South Carolina, Georgia will start right around May 15th, and we'll go all the way to September. Knock on wood, um, right now we're blessed with a very nice crop, um, so it should be about 90, 95% of a crop, but long ways to go to get in the box, but we're excited about that. I was talking to a retailer the other day. Nothing speaks better about summer than when you go into the grocery store and you see peaches. That's it's right. the summer fruit, and so we're excited to have those. Um, we're looking forward to the opportunity. Um, again, it's ask for it. Consumers need to be out there demanding. Do you really want to have something brought in from overseas or you want to have a great taste in Southern peach? And for consumers looking for your peaches, what's the brand? Titan brand. Titan brand. All right. Your local grocery and demand Titan brand during the summer, right? Chambers, I want to thank you for coming. Lorianne, thank you for coming. I've been in their place for a a long time and normally they're in season. And these two people... They're not your typical executives when you think of an executive in an operation. Chambers is right in the middle of it. Lori Ann's right in the middle of it uh, out there working with their people, and they are hardworking, great, great folks. The only issue we take up with these guys are big Clemson fans, but we'll, we'll forgive that down here in Florida. Well, we do that's have a okay. gator that's here in the room. <laughs> that's right. Their, daughter, their daughter's a gator, so that's good. So thank you guys for coming, and thank you for what you do. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for what you do on the farm. Thanks for what you do in, in uh, up at uh, Washington as well, uh, fighting for, for growers and being a voice for them. Consumers, uh, please go out, demand American grown, talk to your local produce manager, uh, look for Titan Peaches, and we appreciate you tuning in to, to this episode and this broadcast. Uh, until next time, we'll see you soon. And God bless. Thank you for joining us today. This podcast has been a presentation of Has Media, copyright 2020, all rights reserved. Be sure to follow us on social media on Instagram and Facebook at Highland Ag Solutions and catch the video presentation of this podcast on our YouTube channel. Thank you.